Take your Bibles, stand with me, turn to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. As you know, we've already read the first eight verses. We're going to read them again. We've already sang from Psalm 89, and we're going to do that again as well. And we're about to have a meditation on the faithfulness of God and how that applies to the Lord's call to us as people to be faithful before His face. Psalm 89. A contemplation of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. Your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Selah. And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You have broken Rahab in pieces as one who is slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all its fullness, you have founded them. The north and the south, you've created them. Tabor and Hermon rejoice in your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand and high is your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all day long, and in your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and in your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, and our King to the Holy One of Israel. Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I've exalted one chosen from the people. I found my servant David with my holy oil. I have anointed him with whom my hand shall be established. Also my arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him. And in my name his horn shall be exalted. Also I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God and the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep for him forever. And my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever and his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and they do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. 
My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Selah. But you have cast off and abhorred. You have been furious with your anointed. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. You've broken down all his hedges. You brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass by the way plunder him. He's a reproach to his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and have not sustained him in the battle. You have made his glory cease and cast his throne down to the ground. The days of his youth you have shortened. You have covered him with shame. Selah. How long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what futility you have created all the children of men. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? Selah. Lord, where are your former loving kindnesses, which you swore to David in your truth? Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen. And amen. The word of the living God may add his blessing to it. And beloved, our sermon text this morning is the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, how desperately we depend upon you for every good thing. We acknowledge that we have nothing except that which comes to us from your gracious hand. And we know that that's especially the case in the preaching of your word. That, Lord, we can have no benefit, no growth in grace, no adoration of our great God, no gratitude for the grace of Christ Jesus, no appreciation for the work of your spirit, the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead and is also now at work in us. So we pray, O Lord, that by that same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead, you would mightily work now in the hearts of your people. Father, if there be any here today that do not belong to you, that are apart from Christ, who do not believe the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we pray, O Lord, that you would remove the spiritual scales from the eyes, that you would grant the new hearts, that you would give the gift of faith and repentance And Lord, that you would turn sinners to yourself, that they might too bless the name of our great God. But we pray, O Lord, that you would humble us before your sight, that you would grant to us ears to hear, that you would grant us hearts to take it all in, to not only understand, but apply, and not only apply, but worship, and pledge ourselves afresh and anew to you this day. Lord, enable us again by your Spirit, we pray. For these things are too great for us. But for your glory, do them, O Lord. 
that you may be praised in the assembly of the saints. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Well, hopefully you never tire of illustrations from Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Some of you have commented on occasion that those are actually the only illustrations that I know that might not be devoid of the mark. But in Pilgrim's Progress, immediately, as you know, the topic this morning is faithfulness. You will recall a very famous character, one of two traveling companions for Christian or Pilgrim. And his name, of course, was Faithful, Christian had heard that he was slightly ahead of him on the path and had uh, hurried on to catch up with uh, his friend. And uh, they make acquaintance with one another. And at one point, the evangelist, who is sort of the one that proclaims the gospel to them originally and who faithfully guides them along the path of righteousness on the way to the celestial city, uh, he meets the two. And he tells them some news that is at the same time foreboding and also encouraging. And the news, if you remember the story, was that they would very soon enter a city. And that city would be called Vanity Fair. And they would have all of the goods of the world at their disposal. You remember when they go into that city, eventually that the cry goes out from the marketplace, what will you buy? And the Christians reply, we will buy the truth. Well, that gets them in hot water. An evangelist had predicted such. He had said that one or perhaps even both of you would be called upon to give his life for the truth. And again, if you are familiar with the story, you know what happens. It wouldn't really be Pilgrim's Progress if Christian died at that early point in the story, and so it had to be faithful. And so faithful goes on trial, and it's a farce, it's a mockery. Bunyan sets it up very much like the false trial that our Lord Jesus Christ was subjected to. And like our Lord and like his martyrs after him, faithful testifies only to the truth. He, according to his name, is faithful by God's grace to the very end. Well, this is interesting, isn't it, to consider this illustration from Pilgrim's Progress because we live in a day and age where, by and large, faithfulness to God costs us, at least perceivably, very little. We might even say comparatively very little. When's the last time that I preached from this pulpit and was escorted out the back by a dozen troops and tossed into a shipping container and kept there indefinitely with the threat that unless you renounce the gospel, you will die in the shipping container? Well, such is the plight of many of our brethren in Eritrea and has been for a very long time. You see, in our day and age, the cost of faithfulness to God is at least comparatively not what it is in other places. And yet there's a cost nonetheless. The Lord Jesus Christ calls upon not just Eritrean believers, not just his persecuted church, but his whole church to deny themselves and to take up their cross and to follow after him. If you are associated with me, the Lord Jesus says, you will be persecuted. So faithfulness in every age, in every circumstance, has a cost. Well, we've come to the point in our studies on the fruit of the Spirit where we're in that 
last triad, that last group of three within the fruit of the Spirit. We've observed that it is one fruit. It has many manifestations. It's like that multifaceted diamond. And of course, the point of looking at the fruit of the Spirit, uh, I was speaking with one of the brothers yesterday about this, it's not the way that many of us were raised in the church or in Sunday school to think about the fruit of the Spirit. Many of us were raised to think about the fruit of the Spirit uh, as sort of a checklist of things that, you know, we've got this list of nine things and the goal of the Christian life is to sort of do more of these nine things than the opposite things that would correspond to them. So your good in the Christian life would somehow outweigh your bad and that would be the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. But in what sense is a view like that consistent with the fact that it is the fruit of the Spirit or the Spirit's fruit. We see that we are utterly dependent in every way upon the Spirit of grace in order to cultivate this fruit of the Spirit. And this morning, it's no different when we consider faithfulness. And we need to be clear from the outset, this is not, I hope and trust the Lord, that it won't become uh, some sort of pulpit browbeating. You faithless generation, you faithless people, This is not the bully pulpit, and if it were, it would be quite hypocritical because the same faithlessness that resides in your heart resides in mine as well. Secondly, this is not to be considered under the idea of bare imitation. Now, we've talked in every single week about how this fruit and every aspect of it is found first and foremost in the character of God and manifested as Christ came down to earth out of heaven. It's the same here with faithfulness. But we're not talking here about bare imitation, just what would Jesus do? And then you answer that question and now you've got this blueprint for the Christian life. No, it's far more than that. It is in union with Jesus Christ and indwelt by the Spirit of God which raised Christ from the dead that you will cultivate the fruit of the Spirit to the glory and praise of our God. There is no faithfulness by bare imitation of the faithful one it is only as we trust in christ only as we rely on the spirit only as we live out of our union with the risen savior that we will bear this aspect of the fruit which is faithfulness in short it's only as we look to the faithful one whose promises are perfect and that never fail that we will have faithfulness shaped and formed in us. But that leaves us with a basic question. What is faithfulness? And it's a little trickier in this particular aspect of the fruit because there's been debate. It's even reflected in the authorized version of the scriptures translating this Greek word pistis as believing. So is it faith or is it faithfulness? And that's a question that commentators have wrestled with for a very long long time. I think, personally, having studied the issue out a good bit, that this adjective that's used here, faithful, ought to be translated exactly that way. But it ought never to be divorced from the fountain from which it flows, namely our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We could put it this way, that faith is the seedbed in which this aspect of the fruit grows up, namely faithfulness. Without faith, 
you will never display the fruit of faithfulness. And so you see, once again, we have root and we have fruit. It's always that way. Unless we have faith, beloved, we will never be faithful. And so you can see from the very outset how important it is to keep our eyes, as Hebrews 12 tells us, fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the faithful one, the God of the covenant, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if we would be a faithful people. F.F. Bruce commented on this distinction between faith and fidelity, between believing on the one hand and faithfulness on the other. He says the decisive factor in translating faithfulness here in Galatians 5 is the context. And that's true of all the uses of the word pistis. He says it's eight companions denote or speak of ethical qualities. And one should expect pistis here to denote an ethical quality also, the quality of being pistos or believing. The adjective pistos usually means faithful or dependable in Paul, although occasionally, as in Galatians 3.9, he says it means believing. Well, with that in mind, we could make a brief sketch of what it is that we're talking about when we say the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. It is to be dependable, to be loyal, to be honest, to be possessed of the truth. Ultimately, it's rooted in the character of God, as we will see, manifested in the person and work of Christ Jesus, who is the faithful and true one, and is worked out in our lives in dependence upon the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead. And so our theme is going to be that, that we look to the character of God, we look to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, His person, His work, and we rely on the Spirit in order to cultivate this fruit of the Spirit, which is faithfulness. Now what we're going to do is, as in other weeks, we'll give a biblical sketch of this faithfulness, relying on the faithfulness of God first and foremost, seeing it in Christ and relying on the Spirit for its cultivation. Then we'll see a couple examples biblically of how faithfulness describes individuals or the church as a whole in the New Testament. And then finally, what we want to do is look at a specific passage, and maybe two, where we will see the faithfulness of God, His covenant faithfulness on full display for our comfort. You know, this is the one thing that will motivate us to be faithful. When we browbeat ourselves and say, oh, I'm just not faithful, you know, I wish I was more faithful, and we don't look to Christ, that is an utterly man-centered way to live the Christian life. Beloved, we have a great, great motivation to live faithful, godly, truthful lives before His face. And it is His very character, and it is the gospel itself that drives and motivates us to these things and so we'll look first at the character of God then we'll look at Christ then we'll see the examples from the church and then we'll turn the coin over to Psalm 89 and perhaps Hebrews 6 if there's time and meditate on those passages regarding the faithfulness of God and what that means for us well first of all let's begin in Romans you know in one sense we could make this survey really quick we could say turn to Genesis 3 15 Adam falls into sin, ruins the whole human race in that sin. All mankind stands condemned. There's no righteousness, no, not one. And God says, but I will provide the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. This is covenant theology 101. 
This is the faithfulness of God 101. He promises in Genesis 3.15, and in this way, as we'll see in our catechism hour today, all the rest of the Bible follows in that train. It is God making good or demonstrating His faithfulness to that promise. We can't even imagine a universe in which God is not faithful. Beloved, your lives have no meaning if God is not faithful. You have no hope. And for the unbeliever, it's even worse. It's not just that you have no hope. You have a certainty because of the faithfulness of God that he will do according to his promises. And you say, well, what's the big deal for the unbeliever? The big deal for the unbeliever is that God promises to pour out his wrath upon all those who reject Jesus Christ in the free offer of the gospel. And so you see, God being faithful guarantees, yes, our comfort now and forever, but it also guarantees the damnation of all those who hate God and reject the gospel of His Son. So you can see massive implications here for this doctrine of the faithfulness of God. But Romans 3.3, with the backdrop of that gospel announced beforehand in Genesis chapter 3, Paul's been talking in the end of Romans 2 about uh, this question, what benefit is there to being a Jew, to being part of God's national covenant people in the Old Testament, and he concludes that there's much benefit in every way. Then he asks this question, what if some were unfaithful? And of course the implication for this is, is that there's unfaithfulness littered throughout the entire chronicling of God's old covenant church. And so where you see that faithlessness, does that mean that God then will abandon and reject his own promises? And and Paul says, no, no, and no again. Does their faithfulness nullify, or faithlessness rather, nullify the faithfulness of God? Well, they were covenant breakers. They did not walk faithfully before God. Even in Psalm 89, we have explicit testimony to that. But many of the Psalms chronicle this. Psalm 78 is another wonderful example. And if you want an entire Bible book, just go and reread the book of Judges, and you'll get this exact pattern over and over and over again. But you think about, in light of the faithlessness of God's covenant people that He called out of bondage, and brought into the liberty of the sons of God. Out of Egypt, I called my son. That's their heritage, but their conduct was faithless so much of the time. But Joshua has a glorious testimony. In light of the many fumbles and foibles and sins and rebellions of God's people, Joshua says not one word of all of his promises fell to the ground. You know, for a promise to fall to the ground, it means it went unfulfilled. And Joshua says, he's done everything that he said. And back of that is this theology of God. And it has to be that way. It cannot be any other way. The Lord cannot lie, else he would not be God. He is the God of truth and faithfulness and right. But Paul then, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, takes us deeper He's reflecting on his thankfulness to God for the church in Corinth, and that by itself might be a shocking meditation for us, being thankful for the church in Corinth. But that's not our topic here today. That would be their faithlessness. But Paul writes in 
chapter 1, verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. He just summarized four verses with one phrase. God is faithful. All these promises that He has heaped up, the grace of God that was given, you were enriched in Him. You're not lacking any gift. You'll be sustained to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Summarized as this, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And as we dig deeper into 1 Corinthians 10, we see yet another wrinkle. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And now here it is. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I was listening recently to Joel Beacon. Don't ever quote this against me, please. But he said, you should never go 10 minutes in a sermon without making one application at least. So we're going to try that out. But like I said, don't quote that. We need to apply this, don't we? We need to take this to heart. Because sometimes in our own hearts, even in light of this great testimony that God is faithful, that that He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, that He will make the way of escape. He will do these things. That's the essence of God's faithfulness. I will, I will. I will. Read your Old Testament that way. It'll open up a glorious panorama of the faithfulness of God to you. The I wills, even just of the Psalms. There have been entire books written on that topic. The I wills of the Psalms. But here, we might reason this way in light of the faithfulness of God. You know, I hear what you're saying. I get it. God's faithful. But, it's always that thorny thing, right? If you knew the depth of my struggles then you would not expect me to take any comfort in these promises. I'm beyond the reach of such promises. I I have fouled myself. I have failed so miserably. How in the world could God's faithfulness to His promises be of any comfort to me, such a miserable and wretched sinner as I am? Or maybe we say something like this, you don't understand the nature of my struggle. You know, if you understood just how besetting a sin was encompassing my heart, if you understood how the tentacles of that sin have so gripped me that I feel completely and utterly helpless to avoid it, you would not speak to me of the faithfulness of God in this way. And yet, it is in the context of Paul's exhortation to the church in Corinth, that cesspool of iniquity, that he gives this promise. You will not be tempted beyond your ability. God will provide the way of escape. Why? Because he's faithful. That's why. And so if you are prone, and we all are at some level, to reason this way, You don't understand my circumstances. You don't understand how hard it is. You don't understand how wrapped up in my sin I really am. 
All that may be true on some level, and yet the Word of God trumps the way that I feel about all these circumstances. He has spoken. He will do it. And it is for us to lay hold of these things by faith. We say things, don't we, like, if you knew my husband, you would never tell me that God's grace is sufficient for my submission. If you knew my boss, you would not tell me to glorify God and to serve selflessly in the workplace. You wouldn't be able to do it either. These type of arguments we make in our minds if we don't say them with our mouths. You know, if you knew my elder, if you knew my pastor, if you knew my parishioners, the church members in the congregation, and on and on it goes. If you knew my children, you wouldn't tell me to be less severe with them. You would be perfectly fine with me batting them about and angrily yelling at them all the time because, well, you just don't know them. If you did, you would endorse this. Beloved, do we really believe that God is faithful, that He will provide what He commands? It's exactly the way Augustine prayed. Remember his prayer? Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Now that might take some untangling. But I trust you get the general point. He was praying, Lord, your will be done, but I need the grace to do it. And that's exactly what he promises. That's exactly the comfort we have from his faithfulness when we think on these things. Second Corinthians now. We, we haven't left the cesspool yet. Chapter 1, verses 16 to 22. Paul writes, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful. Here it is again. Paul just loves this phrase. Our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no. And now here it is. In him... It is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, Jesus Christ. That is why it is through Him, through Christ, that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now again, you see incredible promises backed up by the fact that God is faithful. And this needs to be the pattern of our own thinking and our own living. We look at the faithfulness of God. We are persuaded of the truthfulness of that statement. And then we look at the promises. If He is faithful and true then whatever he promises, I can take, as Spurgeon said, to the bank of faith. I can cash this check because the Lord himself has written it for me. And so Paul can say that God in his faithfulness establishes us with you in Christ. He can say that the Lord through Christ and because of his faithfulness has anointed us with the Spirit. He's put his seal upon us. He has given us the Spirit as he says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, as a guarantee, as a deposit, as that engagement ring 
the down payment on his promises. And then 2 Thessalonians 3 3 again, Paul is at the same business, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you. And now, one step further, even, he will guard you against the evil one. World, flesh, devil, the Lord provides. The Lord is faithful. The Lord will keep us. The Lord will establish our steps. The Lord will fill us with His grace. The Lord will cause us to walk by His Spirit and bear much fruit. And now to 2 Timothy chapter 2 for a marvelous encouragement regarding God's faithfulness. But here now in the light of our unfaithfulness. This is a very old covenant way to put things by the Apostle Paul. He writes in 2 Timothy 2, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. You remember the words of Christ in the Gospel to that effect. But now here it is, verse 13. If we are faithless, and maybe we should read that since we are so faithless. He remains faithful. Why? Because He cannot deny Himself. You see what Paul is saying? It's amazing. God guarantees His promises and every one of them will make good because He cannot lie. He cannot deny Himself. This is His nature. This is who God is and how God is with His people, faithful to the very end. Now contrast that with something like Islam where you have the second in command, so to speak, Abu Bakr. Many of you have heard this already before. Now, his right-hand man, Allah, had this idea that he could have no confidence to enter heaven. And you think, you know, if the right-hand man of the supposed deity of a religion can't have any confidence that he's going to enter heaven, what hope is there for the followers? Seems pretty logical to me. But here, you wonder why. You say, Abu Bakr, why being the right-hand man for Allah, why are you so concerned? Why do you have so little confidence? Why is there no hope of assurance for you that you'll even enter heaven? And he gives the reason. He says, because Allah is the greatest deceiver and could capriciously pull the plug on anyone entering heaven. You know, beloved, you think of something like that, and if that were the case with our God, the God of the Bible, every single passage that we just read is completely null and void. You have no hope. You have no confidence. You have no assurance. You have no heaven. You could just as easily be discarded like a rag and tossed into hell arbitrarily, having nothing to do with faith in Jesus Christ. God could just pull the plug if He were the great deceiver. Oh, beloved, but this is not our God. It's the exact opposite. In His nature, He cannot deceive us. He cannot lie to us. He cannot fail to make good on every one of his promises, which are all yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's go back to the Old Testament just briefly. 
We started with Genesis 3.15, and let's go back to Genesis, but move a little further into the narrative. You remember in Genesis 12, you have the covenant that God comes and makes with Abram. And so God makes these incredible covenant promises. He calls him out from his land and from his family to go to the place that God will show him. He will make of him a great nation. And he goes on to tell him eventually that he can try to number the sands of the seashore or the stars of the heavens. And that will be the number of his descendants in the covenant. Well, by Genesis 15, we find Abraham wavering. And then God in response, instead of flaying him or punishing him, He graciously comes again to him. And what does God do in Genesis 15? There's this weird ritual ceremony where the sun goes down and uh, there there is this uh, symbolism of God himself passing through the pieces of animals that had been torn in two. Now, what is going on there? Sounds barbaric. Well, this is a symbolic representation of the same thing we've been talking about now for the last number of minutes. Every one of the passages points to the principle that's illustrated in Genesis 15. What was God saying to Abraham? When God passes through the pieces, the significance of those torn beasts put on either side to make a row and God walking through is this. Whoever in covenant making and covenant ritual ceremonies walks through the midst of that path is the one who is saying, I will do this what I have pledged and promised, else I will be as these beasts torn in two. Do you see the radical significance for this? Abraham's faith is teeter-tottering. And God comes to him and he says, I will buttress your faith and the way I will do it is by promising to fulfill everything that I have said to you despite your weak faith. That's the glorious thing as you read through the faith chapter in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, sometimes called the hall of faith. I think that's horrible. Uh, We shouldn't use those kind of terminology. But uh, nonetheless, Hebrews chapter 11 paints this picture of the faithful, those who walk by faith in God and all of his promises. And yet some of the names that are listed there in Hebrews 11 are not typically associated with faith or faithfulness. You think of Samson, if we had no other name to give. I don't know about you, but... When's the last time you read the Samson narrative? I don't know that the application that you find in the Samson narrative is, Samson's faithful, be faithful. I don't think you find that there. Samson was a rogue. He was a wicked, godless man. Now, there were aspects of his life, and maybe only one, where he actually trusted in the Lord, where he actually exercised faith. And he finds his way to the list of those who lived by faith. What's the point? God, despite our faithlessness, remains faithful to his promise. And that is what he was illustrating to Abraham from Genesis 12 to Genesis 15. And so God is showing Abraham that he will keep the covenant, that Abraham cannot do it. And that God will receive all the glory for it. And of course, this is magnified to an almost inestimable degree when you get to the suffering servant song in Isaiah chapter 53. Because the question is, back in Genesis 3, how will God 
be faithful to this promise regarding the seed of the woman. And Isaiah lays it out for us. He will send one very God of very God in the flesh who will suffer in our place. This is exactly what happens. The suffering servant is pledged by our covenant God for His people and all of their sins. And all who look to Him will have their sins forgiven. Again, it's impossible for us to do this without despair. But what if? What if God's faithfulness could be removed? What would happen? What are the implications of a universe in which God is not faithful? There's no good news that's possible. There's no certainty. There's no assurance. There's no ultimate hope. Oh, but beloved, this is the good news. That He is essentially and perfectly faithful. And how do we see this? You know, if the Roman Christians were tempted to despair because of their hardships... And they had many. Paul says, you want ultimate, final proof that God is faithful. You want proof that Genesis 3.15 did not fail when Christ, the seed of the woman, came and crushed the head of the serpent. You want proof of this? That God's faithful to all of His promises and that He will bring you safely through to the end and sanctify you all along the way. Here's the proof. God did not spare His own Son, but He gave Him up for us all. And how does Paul reason? How will He then not freely give us all things in Christ? That's our hope, beloved. That is the way that we have to think. This is the anchor for our souls, the very faithfulness of God manifested in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And think about how John describes this as he begins that upper room discourse, as we call it, in John 13 to 17. How does chapter 13 begin? With some of the most comforting words contained anywhere in Scripture. Jesus, having loved his own, loved them to the end. Period. Full stop. Full comfort. What was true in John 13 is true now because God is faithful and He has given to us the one who is faithful and true. But what about faithfulness in us, in the saints? We've been seeing the implications. We have to first look to the faithfulness of God. We have to see it in the person and work of Christ. But now it's for us to apply it. And so we look at a passage like Hebrews chapter 10. You know, the writer of the Hebrews gives this imperative or command. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Well, that's simple, right? Walk consistent with your calling and don't waver. Yeah, not so simple, right? Daily difficult. And yet, he's going to give them a buttress for their faith. How can we do this? Why should we do it? How can it even be possible for us to live a life like this? That which we have confessed, that which is our hope, we walk consistent with it without wavering. How? And the writer says, for he who promised is, I know children, 
you can fill in the last word. He's faithful. He never fails. He always keeps his promises. And so we have great encouragement. You think again about our brethren in a place like Eritrea. How in the world do they hold fast the confession of their hope without wavering? I mean, some of you have heard some of the details of what was done to our brother Zeki when he was in the shipping container. And these are atrocities. This is as inhuman treatment as you can get, all with one purpose. Maybe one or the other purpose. Either you die or you recant your faith. Either way will do. Now, it's a whole different story how he got out of there and is now an OPC minister in Atlanta, but praise be to God that he is. But the point here is, how does one in that sort of circumstance, how does he hold fast the confession of his hope without wavering? How do Paul and Silas sing hymns at midnight when they have been falsely accused, have been imprisoned, have been beaten and mistreated? How in the world are they singing praise to God? Holding fast the confession of their hope without wavering. It's not because these are super Christians such that we will never be. No, they are regular believers in union with Jesus Christ, living and walking by the power of the Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead. It's the same for them as it is for us. And so we have the same command. Hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering because the one who promised is faithful. And then in Hebrews 11, we've mentioned it already, but verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since what? She considered him faithful who had promised. Now, we gloss over that and we think, ah, yeah, yeah, they're all faithful in that chapter, right? Think about Sarah's situation. That is an old, old lady. It is physically impossible for her to bear a child. And yet God has promised that it would not be Eliezer of Damascus through which he would fulfill his covenant promises to Abraham. It would be through his own seed, his own son. And so Sarah has this promise. And you might say, yeah, but Sarah kind of hiccuped herself. Yes, she did. And so do we. But God is full of grace. Even for the faithless, he remains Faithful, or 1 Peter chapter 4, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. So continue to do good. Even in the midst of world, flesh, devil, even against the threat of all persecution or whatever loss may come. Why? Because your Creator is faithful. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He will not abandon you. He will work all things together for your good. And because of who He is and what He has done, we must believe that with all of our hearts. And we were assured of parting grace this morning as we seek to wrap up this survey from 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is what? Faithful. Sometimes we read that as, you know, God has faithfulness produced in him if we're willing to confess our sins. That's a foolish way to read the text. God is faithful. 
God is just. That's why when we confess our sins, His faithfulness is put on full display in the pardoning of our sin and the cleansing us from all unrighteousness. This is the grace of God in all of its beauty and its glory. Well, the second thing we want to do then before we make just a a few applications is this. We want to look at Psalm 89. I would invite you to turn with me to that text. We've been doing sort of a bounce around survey to this point, but we want to hone in on one passage in particular and then uh, perhaps turn to Hebrews 6 or at least make reference to it since it's glorious in this connection as well. But in Psalm 89, we see the faithfulness of God on display, but... It is within the context in redemptive history of the exile where the faithfulness of God was not immediately seen by the physical eye of His people. They are languishing. They are in exile. The wall has been broken down. The temple has been destroyed. They can't ascend the holy mountain of God to worship Him there. They're under the thumb of their enemies. And so, of course, the natural question is this, Lord, you say you're faithful... But I don't see that. You say you're true to all your promises, but when I look and survey things in my own life and in the life of your people, I don't see it. And so you'll have questions in Psalm 89 like, have you ceased to be faithful forever? Now, this is where the rubber hits the road for us as well. Because we do not yet see Jesus the one crowned with glory and honor, Psalm 8, we do not yet see him ruling over all of his enemies, having subdued them under his feet. But the writer of the Hebrews comforts us with this, that we see Jesus himself, the one who came in order to demonstrate most fully the faithfulness of God himself. But look at the language of Psalm 89. We think about this idea of faithfulness, and it's right from verse 1. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations. You see the connection between the faithfulness of God to all His promises and the worship that God's people are to bring. Verse 2, I've said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens, skipping down to verse 5, the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. Down to verse 8, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. Down to verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. And then verse 24. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him. And in my name, his horn shall be exalted. And you remember the early chapter in Luke there with those prophecies that come through Zechariah. And the promise that God would raise up a horn of salvation out of the house of David, his anointed one who will rule and establish the very faithfulness of God. This is Jesus Christ who's being prophesied in Psalm 89 as not only the answer to the temporary need of God's people in exile, but their greatest need, redemption from sin and the bringing back from bondage to sin. 
through the work of Jesus Christ, the King. And then finally, verse 49, the question comes, Lord, where are your former loving kindnesses which you swore to David in your truth? So here they are in exile. They have questions. The eyes of faith are somehow veiled to them and all they can see is that the promise of God perhaps has been gated. Perhaps he's left off being faithful. Perhaps he will never again be faithful. They even say, you have cast off and rejected us. Lord, have have you broke the covenant? Will you never be faithful again? Are you done with us, they cry out. Are you done with your faithfulness? And of course, the response ultimately to this, not simply to bring them back from exile, although that's a temporal response, but the ultimate response to the question, oh Lord, have you left off being faithful? Are you done forever with your faithfulness to your people? The answer comes to us in the new covenant, in the person and work of Christ Jesus. God says to us in Christ, I am faithful. Trust my promises. Believe my word. I do not and I cannot lie even as I pass through the pieces for Abraham of old to strengthen him by my promise, so I have done for you in Christ. Jesus Christ has been rent, has been torn, has been cursed, has suffered under the wrath of God in the place of guilty sinners. Why? Because God promised that it must be so that he would come and bear our sins in his body on the cross in order that the faithfulness of God might be established forever and ever and ever. And still our response as his new covenant people is so often, Lord, we've heard what you said. We read the promises. We have them preached to us. And yet we don't see it. We see these glorious promises that you will establish holiness and righteousness in your church. That you will build us up upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ as the chief cornerstone. That you will establish the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in the midst of your people. That you will never leave or forsake us. That there's no condemnation. Lord, we see opposite evidence to every single one of those things in this world in which we live. And it's because, beloved, we live in this present evil age but we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. That is what our eyes can see, but we need to look past this, past this present evil age, past the world, the flesh, and the devil, past all of our failures and faithlessness, and we need to see Jesus and all of His manifold faithfulness. We don't see, as we said before, all the enemies under Christ's feet, but we do know because of God's promise that his victory is sure and certain. And we sing in Psalm 98, don't we? The victory is won. And that points us forward again to Christ who won the victory. The seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent. All of these things we possess now in principle. But when Christ Jesus returns, we will have it in full possession. And so, because of the faithfulness of God, we can long for that day. And we can be encouraged in the midst of all of 
the difficulties, all of the sorrows, all of the suffering of this life. Because God is faithful to all of his promises. The question will come to us again and again and again. Even as we've reflected on the goodness of God, our circumstances will beg us to reconsider whether or not God is good. And beloved, very similarly, our circumstances will scream at us to reconsider whether God is really faithful. But as we've seen from his word, in which he cannot lie, he is faithful to all of his promises. What if, what if we are made to taste something like what was tasted by the church of old in exile? What if we are made to taste something of that which our Eritrean brethren have been subjected to? What if we become the persecuted church in America? Well, if all these things come and we're not prophets or predictors, the Lord alone is sovereign over these things. But if these things come, this doctrine of the faithfulness of God will be the thing, the foundation upon which we will hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. It will be the character of God and all of His sure and certain promises that will hold us up in the midst of great temptation to the contrary. Praise be to God, who has given us a rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, on which to build the entirety of our lives. All these promises, as as we've seen, point us to Christ, the surety of salvation in him and has been the very foundation upon which the martyrs in every age have willingly shed their own blood but look at verses 33 to 37 this is the word of the lord and you can read it through the lens of the new covenant in christ jesus nevertheless my loving kindness i will not utterly take from him nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. And the same dynamic is there in the only place in the Old Covenant where the term New Covenant is actually mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 31. And what does God go on to say after he makes the promises of the New Covenant? He says, oh, if the created realm can cease, if the seasons can change, if sun and moon will stop doing their thing, oh, then maybe the promises of God could fail. And what is he saying? He's saying the promises of God are sure and fixed, even more so than the natural realm. And so we can hope in him. Hebrews 6 applies this by saying, you know, our ultimate confidence is this. Not in our ability to strengthen our own faith, but frankly, just to simply lay hold of that which God puts before us in Christ. And so what does he say? You have an anchor for your souls. How can that be? 
an anchor. We have stability. We have confidence in Jesus Christ, who is that anchor, because God has sworn by Himself. Just the same way as He passed through the pieces. Why would God swear by Himself, and why would that be significant? Think of someone greater by which God could possibly swear an oath or make a promise. And there is none. And so the promise stands, and we can take it to the bank. Well, just a couple words of application as we close, beloved. Think on Christ again. He set his face like a flint with determination and purpose to go toward Jerusalem. And you remember, that wasn't just any trip to Jerusalem. That was the trip of the sacrificial lamb going up to be slaughtered going up to give Himself in the place of His people. And along the way, you remember in Gethsemane, and you see the faithful Savior, though He is absolutely beset around and about by sorrow, by agony of soul, not my will, but Thy will be done. Jesus Christ was faithful to the end. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Beloved, that is for you. That is for me. The heart of Christ in heaven for sinners on earth is glorious beyond compare. He will never leave or forsake us. And this informs our response, doesn't it? The one who has been faithful in all things has called me to walk faithfully in all of his ways. And that should delight us, frankly, beloved. So many times we see the commandments of God as a bummer or a burden. We should repent. When we feel the weightiness of the commands, we should see that as a reflection of my own sinfulness, not of any lack in God. And we should turn again and be reminded of his promises, willing to do Whatever God calls us to do, regardless of the cost, this is biblical faithfulness. This is a response to the gospel itself. And again, we're plagued by our own sinfulness. You know, I would do what the Lord calls me to do if. You ever thought like that? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. We've all thought like that. I would glorify God in my marriage if. My husband would get his act together and be a good leader. I'd be a better leader if my wife would get her act together and show me a little more deference. You've all got your own versions of this at different times and in different places and in different ways in your lives. But the principle and the temptation is the same. We talked about it earlier. You know, I would obey the command of Scripture to be faithful in my calling to work And I would see it as work unto the Lord and not unto men if the unto men part wasn't so prevalent in my work. That boss, you could never work for him. How in the world does the Lord expect me to glorify him when he's sovereign over all things and he's given me a boss like that? We reason this way. Or you might think, you know, I I hear nurture and admonish your children in the Lord, raise them for the glory of God. They're a blessing and a heritage but you, you don't see my kid behind closed doors. You don't see how difficult it is to 
obey those commands. Frankly, I don't see the faithfulness of God to His promises with my children. If they were a little more obedient, then I would be a little more faithful. And you can see this sort of barter system that goes on in our hearts when we're beset by temptation. Or perhaps we play the comparison game. Instead of comparing ourselves to the ultimately faithful God and His Son Jesus Christ and His faithful Spirit who sanctifies us, instead of that, we look at each other. And, you know, how can you expect me to be faithful when an elder is not faithful? Or or we look at some prominent Christian preacher that has recently fallen into gross sin. And we say, well, you know, if they did that. But again, our eyes are in the wrong place. Our faithfulness is not dependent upon the faithfulness of another Christian. Even if every professing Christian in the world should apostatize tomorrow, hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. has nothing to do with the people around you. Does it make it more difficult to be faithful when the church around you is faithless, when your elders are faithless, and so forth? Of course it does. That's not the way it ought to be. And yet, we are each of us and all of us collectively called to this faithfulness and dependence upon Christ and His Spirit. And we might think about our vows in this connection. We've made vows, whether they're marriage vows, whether they're membership vows, some of you baptismal vows, but you take your vows. And what's a vow? It's a pledge of faithfulness. And you know, when we take our membership vows, that we are resolving, we're pledging, we're promising to live faithful, godly lives. But you've never heard a single person in this place, and I hope in no other church of your acquaintance, that has not conditioned the call to faithfulness on reliance on the grace of God. Or we might say, in reliance upon His faithful word and promise. And so, we keep our vows with that perspective as well. When you read the Bible, God requires nothing less than joyful and willing obedience. That's faithfulness. Anything less is unfaithfulness. You may be accustomed to performing a certain way when people are looking and you look very religious, you look outwardly very good. But in your heart, what's going on? What drives you? Is your faithfulness a man-pleasing? Is it done for the approval of others? Or do you have an eye to the one who was faithful to the end for you and on that basis you respond in gratitude for His faithfulness? Faithfulness looks to God and to His promises and says, if God did this for me in Christ, then I'll trust Him, be faithful to Him, and live for Him even to the very end. Well, beloved, we've reached the end. But not without hope for the future. We've already seen God's faithful to all those promises, and so all the promises of new heaven and new earth must come to pass. You will taste 
that perfection which Christ purchased and is given to you in principle even now, you will taste that. And you will hear, those of you who trust in Christ alone, you will hear the words of the Master say, well done, good and faithful servant. And if that doesn't tell you something about the great faithfulness of God and the abundance of His mercy and grace in Christ, well, beloved, you see His faithfulness in that. We are not good. We're not faithful. And yet that is the greeting that we will receive when he welcomes us into eternal glory. Not for the sake of us, but for the sake of his son, who is good and who is faithful to the very end. Let's pray. Lord, what comfort that when we are faithless, you remain faithful because you cannot deny yourself. We worship you and thank you and bless your name for the God that you are, for the promises that you have made, for the certainty that we enjoy because you cannot lie, for the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to love us and love us to the very end, to give himself for us, to seal to us All the precious promises which are yes and amen in Him. Lord, we long to live faithful lives before You. So help us to see Your faithfulness that we might be established in our own faithfulness on that basis. Oh Lord, apart from You, there is no faithfulness in us. Everything we have, we've received from you. But we pray that even as you have lavished upon us grace upon grace in Jesus Christ, that, Lord, you would as well work into the fabric of our spiritual being, faithfulness to God. We praise you for your covenant faithfulness. And we ask, O Lord, that you would strengthen us in ours. For we pray it in Jesus' name.